created live on Fireside. Sorry for the delay. We are on. This is a Trauma Survivor Thrivers podcast, and I'm Lori Lee Binstock. Thank you so much for joining me live on Fireside Chat, where you can be a part of the conversation as my virtual audience. I am your host, Lori Lee Binstock. Everyone has a chance to ask a question by requesting a hop on stage or sending a message in the chat box. I'll try to get back to you as soon as I can, but as I do ask that everyone be respectful. Today's guest is Laura DeVore. Laura is the author of Darkness Was My Candle, a memoir that traces her life as a survivor of child abuse, sex trafficking, illegal pharmacological drug research, and institutional abuse. Now, she devotes herself to spreading the word of these atrocities with her personal documentation of her story. With an advanced degree in clinical psychology and recognized as a national expert in Catalyst for Change, her wisdom comes from the field of psychology, transpersonal development, and spiritual psychology. Laura, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much, Lauralee. I'm so sorry it took me a while to, to get on, but I'm glad to be here. Well, thank you. You are not the first one. You won't be the last one who has issues okay, trying to get on this good. platform. So don't even worry about it. Um, I do want to get into your story. I know I labeled this title institutional abuse, but they, you've you've endured so much more than that. But I do yes. want you to talk about your childhood and what led you to become institutionalized. Sure, I'd be happy to. The first thing I want to say is why I wrote the book. And I wrote it as an act of love because my story didn't just happen to me. It has happened to thousands of others. And it's Mm -hmm. a part of our collective shadow. And my story is not just about trauma. It's about redemption. And in all the darkness, there was always grace. And that's, that's why the, the subtitle of the book, darkness was my candle is called an odyssey of survival and grace. So I um, grew up with a mom that had been very, very injured at age three during the Great Depression. And she, I I really believe that she stopped growing psychologically. She was parented by some siblings. Her mother was catatonic and her father had died in a blizzard in the middle of nowhere in northern Wisconsin. And they would have starved had the older sister not hiked into town to get a job, which left the care of my mother and her other siblings. And my mother was age three. There was a brand new baby, two other girls, and then a couple of boys. That left the care of all of the siblings to the boys. And they couldn't, they just couldn't care for anyone. And it it, it always makes me think of that book we had to read in English literature, Lord of the Flies, Mm. where the kids had to survive on their own and they couldn't. And mayhem resulted. And that's what happened in her family. She climbed, there was, so, there was rampant physical and sexual abuse. She climbed out the window um, at the age of 12 and had sex with a farmhand for her first pair of shoes. And that began her life of prostitution. Wow. And when I was three, there was a, there was a blizzard going on and it was Thanksgiving day and my uncle and my mother were living together as mother and wife and our as 
as yeah, husband and wife, mm-hmm. and I was um, there in, in, in the kitchen when he shot himself, as well as my mother was. And she went pretty crazy and beat me and threw me upstairs in the, in the bed and then left the house. And my aunt came to the house to see why we hadn't shown up for Thanksgiving dinner and went halfway up the stairwell calling for my mom, but didn't hear anything, so assumed that she had left the house with me. And my uncle and my mother were always fighting. There was a lot of domestic violence. And so my aunt called the sheriff who called the coroner and, and he removed the body and he, he ended up um, <clears throat> not going up the stairwell because my aunt said she had already checked upstairs. So I was left in the house for three days by myself. And mm-hmm. it wasn't till my mother staggered in um, drunk to the funeral that everyone wanted to know where I was and she couldn't remember where I was. And then they rushed back to the house and found me. But during that time, what was foundational for me is I got out of the bed and I was really hungry. I don't know how long it was, whether it was a day later or two days later. And uh, there was bread on the table and I pulled it down and I went looking for someone and no one was there. And I tried to open the front door and there was a drift of snow that came in. And now I couldn't either get out nor get, nor could I close the door. And it was really blizzardy cold and the snow was drifting in. And I sat down and was sucking my thumb and rocking back and forth and crying. And mm. I literally had an appearance of something that I've always called um, the luminous woman. And she told me very quietly to go back upstairs on my bottom so that I wouldn't fall and get back into my bed and cover up and she'd be watching over me. And and that became foundational in my life. So so despite the fact that my mother's life of prostitution, which impacted me greatly, she um, sold me to a man for the first time at age nine. Despite that, I always had this opening to something greater than myself that I help, I, th- I believe helped save me. Wow. Wow. And, you know, I, I want to get to that, but I, I also want to mention the way you speak about your mom. It seems that there's some compassion there. Absolutely. Her, um, grow, her upbringing um, yes. being as traumatic as well. How did you get to that point? Or were you, did you always feel that? I don't know that I felt it as compassion as a small child. I felt a lot of confusion, mm. and I felt I, I I felt hated. My mother, I don't think, had the capacity at that point in her life to love, and she never told me she loved me. Um, she never held me. She told me to get out of her sight daily, and told me she couldn't stand the look of me and and wished I'd never been born. But mm. I was confused by that. And I, I remember th- feeling like I was an alien, someone born from another planet, and I couldn't understand why anybody would want to be here. And so that I had my first, my first suicide attempt shortly after she had sold me. I, 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 I was more confused than anything. And it wasn't until many years later I was in graduate school 
and I had to um, write about my family history, which was really hard at the time. And of course, I didn't write nearly as much as I've written in the book. <laughs> uh, but I, um, I did. I what I did is that my my mom's oldest sister was still alive, and she was always the healthiest, probably because she had been taken care of the longest um, before mayhem ensued. And um, I asked her if she would tell me the history, and I took a recording machine, and uh, a voice recording machine back in those days. I don't think mm-hmm. you can even buy one now. <laughs> and, and so she told me all of my family's history. And I think it was then that I really began to have compassion and realized that my mother had no choice and, and literally was incapable. Uh, she had so much trauma herself. She was incapable of parenting me. Wow. And so it was then that I I felt deeply compassionate for her. I can understand that at the age of nine, being handed over to someone, being to be sex trafficked, what was that? What was going through your head when that was happening? Did did you have any idea? What had happened is a man that came, came, to see her regularly, a man named Oscar, <clears throat> he would, I, I was, you know, those were the days where kids would catch lightning bugs. And one night I was out in the back um, of our apartment. There was a big backyard catching lightning bugs. And he caught me and tried to fondle me. And I got away from him. And then um, not long after that, he asked my mom if he could um, take me for an ice cream cone which he did, and then, then he raped me. Mm-hmm. And then about four or five months later, I was actually home recovering from the chicken pox, and he came to see my mom, and my mo- mom told me to get out of bed that Oscar wanted to take me to the movies. And I, I was terrified, and I, I said I wouldn't go, and I told her what he had done to me. Mm-hmm. And he had gone to the grocery store to get her beer and cigarettes and came back, and she confronted him, and she told him that um, she was going to make him pay and pay good. Um, and then she told him that she wanted to see what he had done to me. So she literally sat on the couch and watched, watched him rape me. Oh, my goodness. And I remember looking at her and realizing that there was, she felt vacant to me. I think she dissociated. And I yeah. suspect, you know, just from my clinical lens... And clinical background, I, I suspect that she was see, almost seeing herself rather than me. It was some kind of um, re-traumatization and trying to figure out her own life. Wow. And I, and I remember, even though I was terrified and it was awful, I, 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 did, I was just confused by it. And I... Um, but I knew she, I somehow sensed she wasn't there. It's not as though her face was taking pleasure from what she was watching. It was just vacant. There was no, it seemed like nobody was there. Wow. And so then, it, yeah, so that ahead. was the first, that was the first man she sold me to. And then there were subsequent times with Oscar and then other men after that. And always she, she did something kind of, which, seemed crazy at the time to me and I I didn't know until I learned later what a double bind is but she would ask the men if they wanted her or wanted me 
and I would just stand and tremble because I knew I was in trouble if they wanted me because then she'd be angry and jealous. But if they didn't want me, she'd be angry and jealous and say that I hadn't acted coy enough um, because she got paid more for me than she did herself. So there wasn't a right answer. How long did this last? Until, until I was 13. And how and did it I, stop? I was taken away from her by the courts, and there mm. were, were a whole su- a number of se- subsequent events that led to that. Um, but I was eventually taken away from, by, from her by the courts, and that was pre-child protection years. So they seldom took anybody away, but they, they removed me. Um, I, the the uh, teachers had complained because I was going to school with so many bruises and couldn't stay awake in, in school because I s- seldom slept. And there were just one, one thing after another. Once when Oscar was there, I actually called the police on my mother and the police came and thought Oscar was my father. And they said they t- the police told them that they better get a better handle on me. I couldn't be calling the police for no reason. And I walked myself to the police station and refused to leave. And I sat in a chair all night. And every time they tried to remove me, it was a chair with um, with arms. I would hold on to the arms and scream. So they put me in in the room with the police dispatcher all night. And then the next morning, they said they I couldn't stay there. And and I begged them to lock me in a jail cell. My goodness. And, and they asked me if I had any relatives. And I told them I had one that I could call. So we called um, one of my mother's sisters that lived in that area, and she and my uncle came and got me, and they took me right back to my mother. And years later, I asked her why she did that, and she said, you weren't my kid. What was I supposed to do? Mm. And I think part of that was the mentality of the era. I don't know. Well, I mean... I mean, you went to a police. You went to a police station begging to stay there, and right. they 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 took you. I mean, I guess that is that is kind of the mindset of you know, your your child. You have parents. You need to go to your parents because we can't take care of you here. That's right. a big problem. <laughs> and I think I think the police assumed back then. Remember, this is pre-child protection years. I think mm-hmm. they assumed that my aunt and uncle probably took me to their house, but they just mm-hmm. took me home to my mother. And then because of a very, very serious suicide attempt, um, I was removed by the courts and uh, overseen by um, the juvenile delinquency program. Even though I wasn't a delinquent and all my papers were stamped abandoned, or not abandoned, abused, neglected child. Wow. And so when the courts took you, where did you go? This was the age of 13? Yes. I, I went from one placement to another. The first placement was a uh, husband and wife who had five children under five. And they really, I think, took me because they wanted a babysitter. And the thing is, I loved those children. And I felt like I could do something for someone else. So, so that wasn't a problem for me. But I was also candy striping at a local hospital and was very close to a nun there. And the foster mother told me that she was going to start working evenings, and she worked at that hospital. And that meant I would have to come straight home from school because now I was going to be babysitting the children from the time I got home. And then I would do dishes and wash diapers and put them all to bed, and, and um, the foster mother wouldn't get home till after midnight. 
And I told Sister Sebastian at the hospital that I couldn't candy stripe anymore um, because Judy was going to work evenings. And she didn't say much of anything, but about two days later, I got home and all my things were on the lawn and the foster mother was furious because I had told Sister Sebastian, I think it embarrassed her. And so she said she was washing her hands of me and, and I couldn't stay there anymore. And where did you go from there? Well, I went to the train station and I um, was going to go see somebody in Lake Forest, Illinois that I knew, a college student who was sort of a big sister to me. And then I called my best friend, Carol, and told her where I was because we were supposed to get together the next day. It was a Friday when this happened. And her father and Carol showed up at the train station, took me to their house. And uh, they said I could stay there, but then they felt like they had to call the police and let them know where I was. And the police got a hold of the court worker. And um, she said that that wasn't okay that um, if I ran away, then I had to go to the youth home. So then I was put in the youth home, which is juvenile detention. Did that seem safer to you than where you had been previously, or at least in your mother's care? Oh, for sure, safer than my mother's care. But it, but it wasn't a good place. Um, but I wasn't there for too long. Um, I had been part, by now I was a, um, let's see, this was the fall after my freshman year this was the late summer after my my sophomore year in college uh, in high school and mm -hmm. um, I had been part of a program that later I learned was the um, pilot for preschool for um, I'm sorry for I'm trying to th uh, think of what it's called um, uh, Head Start mm. which had changed my life before that I just wanted to turn 16 and drop out of school I didn't see myself as a very good student or having much of a future and the woman who had been the founder and director of that program a wonderful woman named Shirley Tomatz um, ended up deciding to take me so I was released from the from the youth home to go live with her and her family mm. and that that was a wonderful place to live and then Shirley got ended up with cancer and shingles all at the same time and was so so ill her own sons went to live with her sister and so then another foster placement was found. So it was sort of one thing after another. Wow, it just, it seems like from the age of three, it was just one thing after another for you. It was. Um, and I can't, and I mean, I don't even know how, I mean, I, I didn't even go through as much as you had gone through. And I know that it was difficult for me to even get through school. Mm -hmm. I just couldn't focus. I wasn't, you know. Absolutely. How, how did how did you get through school and then and get through college for that matter? Sure. Well, what turned it around for me was, I think the, the Head Start program that we that mm. I, I realized that I had something to give others, and what we did is we so I applied for it. Shirley had come to the school and um, said if you were interested in doing it for the summer, and it was without pay, it was, a, it was volunteering for the first summer, then um, you needed to um, write an essay, which I did, and then, I, um, and then have an interview, and I ended up being one of the 12 kids selected. 
And that mm -hmm. began to turn everything around for me because I realized that I did have something to give and I was really good at working with these kids and all my creativity came out. And we team taught and Carol, the girl I mentioned before, she um, was my team teacher and we became best friends. And we would walk to the houses of all these little inner city kids um, in the morning and pick them up and take them to the school where the program was and then walk them home in the afternoon. And they became our kids. We loved them. And we were really good at what we did. They had taken us to National College of Education outside of Chicago right after school got out and taught us how to do lesson plans and to work with little kids. And that changed everything. It, it Suddenly I realized I wanted to go to college. And Carol, Carol was very smart. She was a straight A student and she helped me a lot. And I think just the motivation helped a lot. And I had an English teacher that was, that was really amazing and very supportive of me. Wow, it sounds like this was a really high point in your life from, it was. from what has it was. happened. It was. Um, but from there, there, there was, you were institutionalized. Correct. So, correct? so I did get accepted to college and I um, got several scholarships to go. And I ended up being, my last foster home fell apart about six, six weeks to a month before I was to graduate. And the court worker took me back to my mother. She said she had nowhere else to put me. And my mother sold me to a man the first time I was there, the first that first night. How old were you? Were you seven? Were you an adult? I was at seventeen. This time? I was seventeen. 17. Mm, right, okay. and I I um I ended up fleeing, running away, getting dressed in a stairwell, and then walking the streets all night. Couldn't figure out where to go or what to do, and so went to a pharmacy and bought three bottles of Salmonex and took them and went and climbed under under. A bush in a park and probably would have died had a biker not found me and I'd apparently thrown up all over myself and then I was rushed to the hospital I don't remember any of that and I woke up a number of days later and the court work the foster parents came in to see me and um, they said that I absolutely could not ever come back to their house they thought I would amount to something but obviously I hadn't and they were through with me and then the court worker came in and she said that I wasn't going to manipulate her by doing things like that. So I was going back to my mother, whether I liked it or not. And I pulled out my IV tubing and tried to strangle myself. And then I was in restraints for several days. And one day the head of the hospital, a dear man named Dr. Callahan came in and he sat down and he says, my nurses tell me you're supposed to graduate in a few weeks. And have scholarships to go to college, but I'm afraid if we can't get you out of here, that's not going to happen. So, so I've been thinking about it, and I want to get you out of that bed and get you get your legs moving and some blood flowing. And Connie, my head nurse, is going to walk up and down the halls with us, and then I want to tell you about a plan that I have and see what you think. So we did that, and what his plan was, he said, if I could pull myself together and bring him my diploma the day I would, I did that. I could live free of rent for the summer in this little cottage out back of the hospital. And um, I could work at the hospital as a nursing assistant, and Connie would teach me how to do it. Wow. And so the court worker came. She 
took me back to my mother's <laughs> and dropped me off in the front and just left. And as soon as she turned the corner, I ran and ran to the train station and put my what little stuff I had in a locker and decided I, because I had that promise, I determined that no matter what it took, I was going to survive until graduation. And so I was homeless during that time. And I slept, this is near Lake Michigan, and so I frequently on warm nights slept outside of the pier, on the pier, and I also, my other favorite place to sleep was a convent of a church that I had gone to. Um, And there were some bushes right up close to the, the wall of the convent, and I could climb in between the bushes and then lay on the ground between, and the the, on cold, cooler nights, I think when they had the heat on, there must have been some vents right up against that wall. And so I, I felt warm there and I felt safe. And I figured if anybody messed with me, I could just scream bloody murder and the nuns would come out. So those were the two favorite places I survived. I didn't like, I tried cars, but I didn't like that because I felt too vulnerable and somebody might come and open the door and then I'd be in worse trouble. So mm. I survived. And then the day I took my high school diploma, um, to Dr. Callahan, it still brings tears to my eyes. I um, walked into the nurse's station, and there were banners and balloons and a graduation cake. Oh, my and, goodness. And small presents. And so Those then that's what I did that summer before going to school. That must have been probably the first time you were ever celebrated, it yes. sounds like. Yes, in many ways. Yes. Wow. At a, at later, I'd like to tell you about the very f- about how I learned about love because I think that's important. But we can get to that later. I'll I'll finish your question about the institution. I um. So I did well that summer. I thrived. Dr. Callahan and Connie took me to the, to the train station to go off to college. They gave me the luggage and bought all kinds of supp- school supplies for me, etc. Mm. And I had a little nest egg. Uh, because I got paid working that summer. And I showed up, and I didn't know I was, uh, because I was homeless and wasn't getting any mail anywhere, I didn't know I was supposed to sign up for a dorm. And there weren't any dorms left. But the dean of girls took me under her wing and took me to the school counselor, and they were able to find a home with a widow in the neighborhood who really didn't want a student. And so that didn't last very long. And then I lived with somebody else, but it was, you know, it was the 60s. And everybody was doing drugs, it seemed. And I, my mother had been so drug addicted and alcoholic, I, I couldn't stand to be around that. So I lived with a girl who was smoking a lot of pot and dropping acid regularly. And so then I, I eventually um, was able to get into a dormitory. Hmm. But, but then the other thing that happened during that time, so it was a very stressful year. I can't imagine. I feel like everything, your whole life has been stressful up until this point, at least, from what we were talking, discussing. That's right. And I um, got into a dorm, which was wonderful, but I was working weekends at a small hospital as a nursing assistant, and um, the respiratory therapist, a man, at least 50, um, kept asking me for dates and I kept refusing and he pulled me into the broom closet several times and then he started showing up in the halls at school and um, one night he showed up at the bottom of my L, my 
L track, um, bottom of the the L track. This is in Chicago, and tried to pull me into his car, and a businessman was coming down the steps and scared him off. So I was terrified. So I quit my job, and I went into a real dark place. And I then realized. Uh, a, a memo was sent under the door and I hadn't been going to, I hadn't been going down to the dining room to eat. I was just in bed. I wasn't sure what I was going to do. And I tried looking um, in the paper for jobs, hadn't come up with anything. And I, and the memo was reminding us that um, the dorms were closing and I had nowhere to go. Mm. So my old, old default was I could just kill myself. I can just leave. Mm -hmm. So I took a handful of something, probably aspirin or something. And then I, I, you know, I, I caught myself immediately. I thought that was really stupid. I don't want to die. And I made myself throw up. And then I realized that I needed help. You know, and one of the things I've realized working with young people, young adults, is they have this belief they're supposed to be grown up and that you shouldn't have to ask for help. Mm -hmm. And, but I did. And so I went and saw the dorm mother and I told her what I did and that I'd made myself throw up. And I said, I really need help. I need help knowing how to find a job and knowing where else I can go to live. And she was wonderful and said that she could help me. And she knew of a lot of places that would take a good student like me. And it even had housing, but she was going to put me in a taxi and send me across town to get checked out physically. Um, so I was sent to an ER and they everything was fine medically. And the next thing you know, the doctor came in and he said, we're going to send you to a place called Illinois State Psychiatric Institute. They have a, a, a great new, brand new young adult ward. And it'll just, you'll probably just be there a few days. You'll, you'll have a chance to get your feet back under you and, and rest and recover. They wouldn't mm -hmm. let me out. And they were doing government sponsored research. Wow. And, and so what type of research? Well, drug research. Mm. Uh, and I was on a unit um, that was, cr all, all of ISPE was a, was a research hospital. And drug research was sponsored by different, different um, medical schools or universities around the Chicago area. And I was on a unit for young adults who had no family. Mm. And, and I kept spitting out the pills and then they gave me liquid medicine and I would find a way to try to spit that out. And I knew that they were doing labs and urine analysis a couple times a week, but I, I had no idea. And it wasn't until years later when I, when I reconnected with the, with the, the nurse who was responsible for eventually getting me out of the state hospital I was committed to from ISPE that I found out that they were doing urine analysis to see where the drugs were landing in your body and how much was accumulating. And mm. I was, um, my discharge papers say I was on Thorazine, Stelazine, Melaril, Librium, and Dilantin, none of which I needed. And eventually I ran away. They caught me they, I, and got me back. And then they had me committed to the worst state hospital in the system. Elgin State Hospital and Dr. Sydney Krampus. She wasn't a doctor at the time. She was a getting her master's degree in nursing and only worked there for evenings a week. She kept coming in and out of the room after I got back from court, and I, I couldn't move. 
I was in shock. Suddenly I'd gone from a college student, granted an anxious one, but um, to being committed for the rest of my life. And she came in shortly before 11 and she said, I'm going to come in and sit with you till dawn if that's what it takes because you've got to let yourself have some feelings about where you're going or you're never going to survive. And so she did. And I finally broke down around three or four in the morning and she told me that she was going to do absolutely everything in her power to get me out. She felt like what was happening was illegal and that I didn't belong there and I hadn't done anything wrong. And it was her that I found many years later. And um, and she's the one who filled in the details that I didn't know. And it Oh my goodness. Through a number of factors, um, I, I was in Elgin for 15 months. Mm-hmm. That's a long and, time. Yeah. And she, back then, because there weren't highways, um, it took her like three hours to get there. Um, and she was a a Lutheran minister's wife and had three small children, two were preschoolers and in graduate school and worked four days a week. And so it was, you know, every Sunday, which was her only day off, she'd think, I really need to go see her. And then something would come up with her own children or something. And she would say to herself, she's a bright college student. I'm sure she's not there anymore. And then finally, after about nine months, she felt like I was haunting her, she said. And that yeah. So she called the hospital to see, to make sure that I really wasn't there and was astounded that I was still there. And so then she came to see me. And then she she came regularly and did absolutely everything in her power to make sure I got out. And when they first tested me, they, had, they said they had to do um, court testing to see if I was competent. My, um, the IQ test showed up as 40-something. And it was because of all the drugs. And the, then the psychologist who tested me got on board and helped um, in the, the pushing the system to, to find a way to release me. Wow. How did, how did you become this face of someone to, this advocate to prevent anything like this to happen to anyone else? Because I know that Mm -hmm. after that, it seems like that was, that was your mission. That was your purpose. You know, one of the things that, that happened throughout my life is there was one individual after another, like Sydney, like, like um, Dr. Callahan, who showed up at specific crossroads in my life. And I don't think we can, we can um, underscore how important it is that we're kind to each other and mm. that we have compassion for each other. And that we we might not be able to walk an entire journey with someone, but one act of kindness can change the course of a life. Yeah, and that's what had happened to me again and again and again, including with Sidney Krampitz. And I had never forgotten those people. And so I got out of school, or I got out of the hospital, and I went back to school, and. I was determined to do the best I, I could, and I got a little help because I'd been in a state hospital. I got some funding through Division of Vocational Rehabilitation, which took the edge off somehow of having to work and um, go to school and all the rest. And 
So that was one of one of the blessings. Sydney stayed in touch with me that time and was a, a bit of a mentor to me. And I had a couple of other mentors. But the other thing that happened is I knew that I was not mentally ill. And I vowed that I would do absolutely everything in my power. Everything. I knew something was wrong. I knew the anxiety wasn't right. And sometimes the dissociation and flashbacks I had wasn't right. But mm-hmm. nobody knew what post-traumatic stress was in those days. Right. Right. And, but I vowed I would, no matter what, do everything I could in my power to not live my life with a leftover mental health diagnosis. Mm. And so that was one thing I think that was a driving factor. And as a kid, I got really good at listening to my intuition. I think in part, it's how I survived. I can remember in second grade playing this game with myself and I'd take my mind and I'd pretend I had a fishing reel attached to it. And almost like a fisherman, I would have my mind go out and go home, go to my, my mother's apartment. And then I would be able to, I would discern, it was a game I played, literally. Uh, I'd be able to discern, I'd be checking to see if anyone was with my mom and whether it was safe or unsafe to go home. And then I'd walk around town and do all kinds of things if it was unsafe. <laughs> and then I, you know, sometimes I would, I would just go home even when, it, when my intuition said it was unsafe. And every time my intuition was right about it. And somehow I was picking up energetically mm-hmm. and got really energetically sensitive during that time. I feel like most trauma survivors do. They, they're, do. Yes. they're very, in, because they have to be hypervigilant. Right. to their their environment absolutely um, and i wanted to go back to your to mm-hmm. your high the higher power that came to you at the age mm-hmm. of three yes and you said this was a foundation as well as the many people in your lives that right. that showed you some um just some kindness to turn your life around that's um, right how did that get you through all the way from that moment when you were three to past the institution? Well, the thing that, that occurred to me when I, sure, after that is, um, or when I was a little bit older, I was walking by the Catholic church and I could hear this music and I went inside and it was a Saturday and the choir was rehearsing. And I was looking where the music, the source of the music was, because I wanted to get as close to it as I could, and I ended up sitting in the quiet in the um, the stairs to the choir loft, which was above, and I I knew God was raining down on me, and I went into complete, I went into this very expanded, peaceful place, and I did that again and again and again, and then I I learned when they were having choir practice in um, the the Lutheran Church and the Methodist Church, the three churches. That, I, that were nearby in the town I lived in. And that fed my spirit. And after I got out of Elgin, I started going to churches again and seeking out music. And I was in a choir again for a while. So those things fed my spirit. Um, the other thing that fed my spirit is I, I think I lived in the imaginal realm all the time. You know, I did a lot of make-believe play when I, um, finally learned to read at the end of third grade because of the kindness of a substitute teacher. I think the teachers had given up on me by then. And then um, I learned to read. I became an avid reader and I would read books and then I would 
pretend like different people were, were my mother or that I was mm. living that life. So I think those things helped me survive. And when I was um, nine, the same, same time my mother first sold me, uh, what seemed like a miraculous thing had happened to me. Um, there was an upstairs neighbor, and one, one day I was sitting outside waiting for my mom to come home, and she'd been gone for days. And some neighborhood kids came by and asked me what I was doing, and I said, waiting for my mom, which was, which was a mistake because they had teased me before and bullied me. And they went running into our apartment and slammed the door, shutting me out. And I was frantic because I didn't want anyone to see the the horrendous situation that I lived in. And I knew I'd get in trouble from my mother if she came home and saw kids there. And the upper part of the door was glass and I was pushing, trying to push my way in and they're holding it from the inside. And I literally pushed through the glass. Blood everywhere, cuts in my hands and my arms. Mm. Um, and everyone ran off except one girl named Barbara. And she, um, dragged me up the street to a freestanding emergency room that was a block away. Um, and it was only open on the weekends and literally hundreds of stitches later and a note in my pocket and a bill. I'm walking home and I'm not sobbing because I've what the, the physical trauma I've just gone through. I'm sobbing because I know I'm going to get beat because of the mess in the hallway. And I walk into the hallway and stop astounded because it's been cleaned up and the husband of the upstairs neighbor um, um, is putting in a new window and he said his wife had heard the screaming came down saw the trail of blood up to the er so she cleaned everything up and sent him to the hardware store and i should run upstairs because she had made for me and um he was he was finishing up and he'd be up in a little bit her name was Dale Foss. I only knew her for less than a month, but she would find me and sit on the front steps with me or take a walk with me whenever my mother was gone. Um, I still have a key she gave me. They had invited me that first night to sleep on their couch, and I was too afraid I'd get in trouble if I did that. And so she said, why don't you just keep this extra key just in case? So I have what what's called the just-in-case key. <laughs> and um the day that they were moving away I fell apart and I just started sobbing and I said you can't leave me I just found you I don't know any nice grown-ups I don't know why I'm here, even here but you're nice to me and she pulled me into her arms and was cuddling me and rubbing my back and stroking my hair and there was such tenderness and she kept saying I love you I love you you're a good girl and I literally had a spiritual epiphany in those moments something opened to me and I knew with all my heart and soul that that's why I was born to learn how to love and learn how to give it and receive it Mom. and she after she did this for some time she sat up and she said I love you with all my heart and I'd take you with me if I could, but you're not mine. So I can't, I'm never going to forget you. I'm always going to keep you right here. And she pointed to her heart and she looked at me and she said, I want you to look me right in the eyes. This is very serious. You have to take better care of yourself because your mother's too sick and can't care for you. 
And then she said, and I want you to promise me you'll reach out to other people and let other people help you and be, care for you like I have. And wow. then she left. And that created, I didn't know what love was, so it both opened me to that experience and it, it created a hunger and I was starving. Mm. So I, wow. I looked for substitute mothers everywhere. And I don't know... It, I'm sure you're too young, or if anyone that's listening remembers, there was an old show called Queen for a Day, an old game show. And I mm. would watch that when my mother was gone on this old black and white TV. And these women would, contestants would um, tell hard luck stories. And then there was a meter and an audience would applaud. And the one who, ha who got the most applaud would be crowned queen for a day and then would rock up and down an aisle and get roses and gifts mm -hmm. and things to help their hard life. And at one point I tried to write a letter to um, the show and then I thought, no, my mom's different than that and I'd be embarrassed if my mom went on that show, which is so painful in that moment. And then the friend Barbara who'd helped me the day I fell through the window, I was telling her how disappointed I was I couldn't write to Queen for a day. And she didn't know everything about my mother, but everybody knew my mother was a prostitute in that neighborhood. And I often got teased and other parents wouldn't let their children play with me because of it. Mm. But but um, I said, suddenly I had an idea and I said, I know, Barbara, let's have our own queen for a day show. So, so we created a whole list of characteristics. They had to be pretty and kind and not drink and not smoke and not have children because I was convinced that you didn't like children if you had them and have something hard that happened to you that you're willing to tell us about. So we went in and all the local stores searching for them and we finally found our queen in Osco Drug and she was the cosmetic clerk. And then on a summer day, a few, day, a few days or a week later, we marched into Osco Drug with a aluminum foil crown um, on a pillow and had flowers and singing at the top of our lungs, da, 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 the song, you know, the, the music. Hmm. Are you still there? I okay. am. Okay. I am. The, the music from Queen for a Day. And um, she teared up and said she was so touched. And Barbara and I had a hurried consult, and we said that wasn't the re real coronation, but if she'd come to Barbara's backyard the next week, we'd have the real one, and she agreed to come. And so on her break from Osco Drug, which wasn't very far, she walked over, and then we you know, did tricks on the clothesline and all the kind of things little girls do. And um, she helped me with my homework for that next year on her break from Osco Drug. Wow. It's on nice. supper break. Yeah. It, it's so nice to hear that you had these sprinkles of, of oh. amazing moments. Absolutely. Um, there were so many of them. And, you know, one of the things that I think happens to us when we're traumatized, and, and you sounds like you've been traumatized and realized this yourself, there's a period in which um, the oldest part of our brain, the amygdala, the survival brain, takes over. And then everything else is eclipsed and become shadowed. And I think it's so important to remember back what were the joy markers? Who were the helpers in your life? Who were those who believed in you and actually create a timeline and remember that 
because we all survive for some reason. Yeah. And uh, I believe we, there's a reason we survive literally and we survived somehow and there had to be more going on in our lives than the trauma that's overtaking, you know, our nervous system. And it, when we can begin to remember those people who came into our life with kindness, it can make a profound difference. And that's another way I began to grow and thrive. And in, yeah. co in college, um, when I was back in college, there was a homeless woman that did that for me. And I won't tell you the whole story, but the end of the story is she had me tell her about my life. And my mother had been in a fire and nearly died. And my aunt had thought I should know. And I was so confused. I got home from school and I had vowed after I'd been raped when I was 17 because of her that I hated her and that my life depended on never seeing her again. And now I felt in such a quandary. And the song Both Sides Now by Judy Collins came on the radio. And the, the lyrics, I've looked at love from both sides now, from up and down, from in and out. It's love's illusions, I recall. I really don't know love at all. And I started sobbing. And I realized that I really loved my mother. I just couldn't save her and myself. Right. Oh. Yeah. And then I, I went to get the record. And this woman, and I got it, um, it was newly released on the radio. So I, I took the L to get the record and I was standing at a crossroads about to cross the street. And there was a homeless woman selling art on the other side of the street. And I, she was, I was like a moth to a, butter, moth to a light. I, mm -hmm. There was something about her that called to me and I went and stood on the corner and talked to her for hours. And she had me tell, tell her about myself. And so I told her about realizing I loved my mother and being in the hospital and all of it. And she looked at me and she said, some people can't love their children. Some people can't even be around their children. But that's, that's not about love. That's about their personhood. But the soul, the soul always loves. So you be a good girl and keep loving your mother because that's about your soul. And maybe your, soul, your mother's soul loves you but just can't be, can't express it. Wow. That, that's amazing. And she was just a light in my life in those moments. Yeah. I, I think it's important to say, and, and I, I hear this a lot with, you know, I, my, my show is a trauma survivor thrivers podcast, mm -hmm. and I get a lot of trauma survivor thrivers on here. Yes. And I feel like a, a thread is that they've, there's, there was someone in their life that helped mm -hmm. them get through. Absolutely. There was someone who helped turn their life that showed mm -hmm. them some sort of kindness where right. they, they thought, I can do this. That's right. Um, you know, right. I, I think that, so I, I feel like the message here really is, you know, show kindness and compassion to strangers. It, it, right. it really could just change their life. Absolutely. The other thing I think that we have to do and learn, which is often difficult because we form beliefs when we've been traumatized, mm -hmm. is we really have to engage in self-compassion mm -hmm. and, and, yes. and, and get to the point of radical self-love. And that allows us to step into a bigger yes. We also have to learn how to celebrate our successes. And I've learned 
that there's freedom in my vulnerability. And that's actually a superpower. Yes. Yep. That's my first episode called Vulner- Vulnerability is My Superpower. Oh, my really? first ever episode. Oh, yeah. that's great. I love that. Yep. You know, when the book was coming out, I, I had a moment of, um, oh my gosh, what have I done? I'm going to be, I'm going to feel so exposed. And the other thing I think we need to do besides um, really working on our unconscious beliefs is change our language. And so I looked at, I, one day I sat down and I thought, I got to change the word exposed. And the word that came to me was reveal. And then the sentence that came to me is, I choose to reveal myself as loving presence in every moment and every situation. Mm. And and that changed everything because I was, I was freaking out a bit about the possibility of being interviewed and sharing my history. And I, I don't have any of that self-consciousness anymore just because of doing that little bit of inner work and changing that self-talk. And I think that's really important to help yeah. p- people become thrivers as well. Yeah, that that really makes a difference. It really, if you, that right. radical self-love that you're talking about, that right. is huge. Um, and, or, and allowing ourselves to be fully seen because when we, do, when we don't, I mean, I lived a divided life for many years. I was a respected therapist helping a lot of people, an international speaker. And then I had this past that I was sure on an unconscious and sometimes conscious level of people knew, you know, they would no longer respect me or they wouldn't like me or whatever the craziness was. And it wasn't till, um, two years ago when I, when I nearly died of COVID and was recovering and was working with a coach coach that I realized as I worked with her, that I allow, I had to allow myself to be fully seen and that there was more work that needed to be done and that there can be, you can do lots of work as a trauma survivor, but there's also energetic work we often have to do because the residue of the trauma can be stay in our energy body. And mm-hmm. she helped me to work through all of that. And it was by allowing myself to be fully seen. And it feels like all, so much has healed. I'm just not even the same person. So I I think we never stop growing. I agree. I agree. It's day by day with me. (laughs) Yes. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Laura. I really, really appreciate you sharing your story. It's an incredible story um, of survival and just resilience. and, And I'm so honored to have had you on our sh- on my show. So thank you so much. Yes, thank you so much. It was really an honor. And have a wonderful day. And And I hope the audience will go find someone, even the person in Starbucks drive through um, to be kind to. Absolutely. I, compl- I, I sure hope so. Yes. Thank, thank you, you again. All right. Mm-hmm. That was trauma survivor, thriver, Laura DeVore, clinical psychologist and author of Darkness Was My Candle. For more info on Laura, you can click on the scrolling fortune cookie right there on your screen. That'll actually send you straight to her book. It is amazing. So go ahead and check it out. You can also head over to my new and improved website, traumasurvivorthriver.com. That's traumasurvivorthriver.com. October's issue of Authentic Insider is out. And Laura so graciously contributed to September's issue 
issue. So to check that out and other issues, just go to my website, traumasurvivorthriver.com. If you haven't already, please subscribe to my email list to get Authentic Insider in your inbox monthly. Thank you so much for joining us. I will. I hope you join us next Wednesday, October 19th, when I speak with author Stephen Mills. We will discuss the adult aftershocks of trauma. You've been listening to a Trauma Survivor Thrivers podcast on Fireside. I'm Lori Lee Binstock. Thank you for being a part of the conversation. Take care.